The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We continue our studies in the early verses of the sixth chapter of Romans and are nearing the conclusion of our study of this great text that we are baptized into Jesus Christ, identified into Christ. We come now to the section of our treatment of this verse which involves the future. In the plan of God, we are baptized, identified into every phase of the life and being of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This includes the great fact that we are baptized into His coming glory. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled His Coming Glory. When someone overcomes poverty to become wealthy and successful, he has gone from rags to riches. But when someone repents and trusts in Christ, he has gone from dust to glory. God formed man from the dust of the ground, but we fell into sin, depravity, and spiritual death. Jesus died on the cross and rose again so that we might share in His eternal glory. Have you exchanged your filthy rags of self-righteousness for the riches of God's grace? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, His Coming Glory. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. How we praise thee for thyself, and the constant revelations of thy love to us through the written word, and through the experiences of life in Christ. We ask thee to bless the word to each heart in this hour, that it may go forth in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, so that our faith may not stand in the wisdom of men, but in thy power, O God. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ today is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of the Father, occupied in his intercessory work. This is not to continue forever. The hour shall come when he shall rise from the Father's throne, lay aside the robes of his mediation, gird upon his thigh the sword of divine justice, and come forth with all the might of heaven, to complete the work of salvation which he began in his first coming, when he prepared the way for holiness and righteousness and peace by taking sin in himself and dying in our place. In his first coming, he dealt with sin in the universe 
in its aspect of guilt, freeing forever from every claim of divine justice those who put their trust in his atoning death. He delivered us from the wrath to come by becoming our savior. In his second coming, the Lord will deal not with sin in the individual, but with sin in society, sin in civilization. The wrath of God will strike upon the world, which has long treasured up the merit of that wrath, and eternal righteousness shall be established upon this earth. In that coming judgment, we are to be associated with our Lord. First of all, it must be realized that the expression of this truth presents the great fact that the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ shall not appear before the judgment bar of God to answer for sin because the Lord Jesus Christ declared us guilty, took sin in himself, dealt with it completely, and in consequence thereof, declared us to be righteous even while we were still ungodly. That justification frees us forever from any thought of coming judgment. Up until now, all that we have seen of our identification into the complete work of Christ is a matter covering our position and is obtained presently here and now by faith. What we are now studying takes us over into the realm of the future, where our faith becomes sight. Our identification into the glory of Christ is future, even as his own assumption of that glory is future. Let us turn our eyes into the future, through the revelation that is to be found in the word of God, and see some of the phases of the glory with which we who are believers shall be identified. Perhaps it is necessary, since we are speaking of the second coming of Christ, to assert in the strongest possible way that we have nothing whatsoever to do with those who set any dates for prophetic fulfillment. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. That coming is in many phases, and the first phase might begin before we complete this present study, and it might not come for another hundred years or more. We know not the day nor the hour. We know not the times or the seasons. We do know the fact of his coming, a personal, bodily, visible coming to this earth to perform all the works which have been described in such detail in the word of God. It takes a singularly warped mind to read the Bible and attempt to spiritualize the promises of his coming. There are some who deny that the Lord Jesus shall return in person on this earth. But our God warned of this even at the beginning of the church age. We read, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. But at the moment when the Lord ascended into heaven and the cloud of glory received him from the sight of the apostles, the messengers from heaven said, as we read in Acts 1, 11, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ does not intend to return to this earth in like manner, as he went into heaven, then there is no meaning to words, and all the Bible falls apart as nonsense. But we accept the plain, literal statement of fact 
in the clear intent of language used for the communication of thought. And we acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again and that we shall be identified in him in every part of the work which he is to do in the future. Next, let us consider that the Bible teaches that the second coming of Christ has many different phases. Frequently, the nature of future events is obscured by the common practice of looking upon one particular aspect of the truth as being the whole truth. That is as foolish as thinking that a whole elephant has to be like some one part and that he would therefore be like his tail or like his trunk, to use the old Indian analogy. And in the spiritual realm, for example, there have been those who have taken a verse such as that in which the Lord said his coming would be as the lightning which shineth from the east unto the west or as the coming of a thief in the night. They have argued that these verses teach that the coming of the Lord is one great moment of climax. They have failed to see that the second coming of Christ is a series of climaxes, each dealing with a different phase of his creation and purpose. Perhaps the best analogy is that of his own first coming. The first coming of Christ was more than 30 years long. It included events as diverse as the birth of a baby and the death of a man. It comprehends all of the work of the incarnation and the redemption. In exactly the same way, the second coming of Christ covers a long period of time. It lasts for about 1,007 years. Or to be chronologically exact, it lasts for seven years and a thousand years. There is one phase of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with reference to the true church, the living organism, composed of all who have been born again through faith in his blood. There is another phase of his coming with reference to the apostate church, the mere organization. It is possible to be a member of some church organization without being a member of the living organism. The coming of the Lord will divide sharply between those who are alive in Christ through regeneration and those who have been no more than members of an earthly organization. At the end of the Bible, these two groups are presented under the symbolism of two women, the bride and the harlot. John in the book of Revelation speaks of the believers as a bride adorned for the bridegroom. And this refers to the true believers, the organism, that which is alive. He also speaks in a neighboring chapter of the great whore seated upon the beast. And this represents churchianity after all of these who are truly alive in Christ have been removed. There is a third phase of the second coming of Christ with reference to Israel. The Jews are to be restored to the Holy Land and are to have possession of all of it and more, in fact. Jerusalem will no longer be divided down the middle. Israel, the nation, shall possess all that was promised to Abraham, from the river of Egypt even to the great rivers Euphrates and Tigris, and the land formerly occupied by the Hittites and other identifiable peoples. This means that Israel shall include Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Turkey, Israel shall rule upon the earth, even as we who are believers in Christ in the present age shall be associated with him in his heavenly reign. And then in addition to this, there is a phase of the return of Christ with reference to the non-Jewish nations, the Goyim, what we might call the United Nations. Only there will be all of them in it as God treats with them. They shall be brought into judgment for all the horrors of their infamous rule through the centuries. There shall be a phase of the return of Christ 
which shall involve Satan and all his powers. And then there is an aspect of our Lord's return in which he shall deal with the groaning creation. The animal life of the world is to know the removal of the curse, so that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. The vegetal world also shall be freed, and the desert and the waste place shall blossom like the rose. And finally, there shall be a phase of the coming of the Lord when he shall deal with the spiritually dead, judging them and sending them to their lake of fire, destroying the whole material world with a single word of judgment and bringing it forth again as the new heavens and the new earth. And then shall follow the never-changing, always-changing infiniteness of eternity. In every part of this, we who are believers have a part. When the Lord Jesus Christ was before Pilate, he was questioned by the Roman governor. Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Now just as our Lord had to say, To this end was I born, so the believer must say, when confronted with the dignity of his royal position in Christ, to this end was I born again, and for this cause God brought me into the world, that I should be associated with his son, the Lord Jesus, in the government and administration of the universe forever. This is our place and our portion with him. Having seen these various phases of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us look at some of the aspects of our union with him in the work and glory of his return. First, we are to be united with him in our own resurrection at his return. We read in 1 John 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world, the unbelieving world, which calls itself sons of God, but which is not. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now here is our likeness to Christ, even as to our identity. It doth not yet appear, but we shall be like him. And we shall know that that union with him is no more than the fulfillment in actuality of that which is even now our true and rightful position in Christ by our identification with him in the work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the glimpse of our future position can enable us to comprehend more fully the life of glory and victory which the Lord means for us to live even now. Perhaps you can catch a view of the possibilities of triumph, which are already ours in anticipation of the completion of his work in us when he comes again. Our union with Christ is stated in the scriptures to be that of the bride with the bridegroom. We even have the almost incredible statement that we are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I say almost incredible, for surely the imagination of man in his fallen state could never have conceived a position so exalted for any members of Adam's race. To me, this doctrine is one of the greatest proofs of the inspiration of the whole Bible. How could man have ever conceived the doctrine of grace? Man is so addicted to taking glory to himself, so prone to think that he can deserve something, 
so inclined to a favorable view of some doctrine of human merit. And then we find in the Bible that man is presented in the worst possible light as a lost sinner, helpless, hopeless, worthless, an enemy of God, with a heart that is deceitful above all things, incurably sick, and with a mind that is all hatred against God. Now this verdict is no more than presented when we find following it the amazing revelation that man was loved by a holy, righteous, gracious God who pleased to leave the throne of heaven to come and die for the redemption of these sinners. And then we find that the advanced destination which God had provided for these redeemed ones was nothing less than complete identification with himself in Christ and elevation to the throne of heaven. And finally, we are told that we are what makes Christ complete. Surely all of this is true, and it is a divinely revealed series of facts. Several years ago, I lived through an experience which gave me a beautiful illustration of what it means to be identified with Christ in his second coming. I had occasion to go back into the files of some old newspapers in order to look up a certain item. As I turned over the pages of the file, I saw a series of articles running from day to day which concerned Queen Mary, the bride of George V of England. One day, the writer, one of England's titled women, discussed the Queen's jewels. Another day, she wrote of the Queen's shoes. There was an article on the Queen's hats and one on the Queen's hobbies. Day after day, this series ran on as it was at the time of the coronation of George V. And the matter was of interest to every woman in the remotest hamlets of the English-speaking world. As I glanced at the headlines of these columns, I began to think of the reason why the shoes and gloves of a woman in England should be the center of interest for people in the Australian bush and in the farms of Canada and America. She was an ordinary German princess by birth, Mary, of Tech, and there were a hundred others who were of equal rank with her. In fact, there were some princesses whose titles were more ancient and whose families were more renowned. Princess Mary of Tech, if she had married some German princeling, would never have held the interest of the women of the world. But suddenly, she became the object of all eyes, simply because the Prince of Wales had set his love upon her. She was about to become the fullness of him that filled all in all in the British Empire. It was when a monarch loved her that her dresses became an object of interest to others. The love of a king had brought world honor to a woman who otherwise would have been nothing to the world. Twenty-five years after George V and Mary took the throne of Britain, there was the great jubilee of the anniversary of their reign. I happened to be in Asia at that time and had just come from Persia across the desert to Jerusalem. Friends took me to the home of some English people who were enjoying the Jubilee holiday and who were listening to the broadcast of the celebration from London. The announcer described the vast crowds that lined the streets of London. From his vantage point near Buckingham Palace, he described the emergence of the royal carriage and the gracious gestures of their majesties as they waved to the people, whose thunderous cheers could be heard in the background and the announcer then yielded the microphone to another who was stationed on the porch of the National Gallery. And he took up the next phase of the description as they rounded Trafalgar Square. One could visualize the progress of the royal couple by the growing tide of cheers that swelled and mounted as the cavalcade approached the microphone. 
the king and queen, we were told, were bowing and smiling and waving to the crowd. We were then passed along to another announcer who was in the Strand, and the same process was repeated. Next, the announcer in Fleet Street took up the tale, and finally the announcer on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral told of their approach. Now we could hear the pealing of the great bells, and when their majesties alighted from the carriage and walked up to the door of the cathedral, the swelling notes of the organ took up the praise to God, and the great Te Deum was sung. It was a great moment when the love of an empire went out to a worthy monarch and his worthy queen. Then I began to think of the newspaper items I had read some time before about the queen's apparel and the queen's interests. The thought came to me that if the queen had died before the coronation jubilee, the reception of the crowd would have been quite different. The crowd would have been in a gala mood, but there would have been an undertone of sorrow. There would have been many who would have shed a tear and thought of the loneliness of the poor man who would have been sitting all alone in his carriage, receiving the plaudits of his people. Oh, if a king is to be truly regal, in the final sense of the word, he must have a queen beside him to share his glory. And who was the queen of George V? It was the princess who had been raised to these heights of glory by the love of the king. It was thus that she had become the fullness of the king who filled all in all in his empire. And very simply, we may say that this is our position with the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Augustine who said that the fact that God was love proved the doctrine of the Trinity, since there must have been Christ as the object of God's love and the Holy Spirit of love between them. In somewhat the same way, we must conclude that the fact that God is love is the security and guarantee of our position in Christ. He cannot be alone forever. He must have with him the objects of his love. Our very presence with him will cause every angel to look with awe and wonder at him. Just as the people of Bethany looked at Christ with wonder when they saw Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. In the second chapter of Hebrews, the figure of marriage is changed to that of sonship in order to teach the same lesson of union and glory with Christ. We read in Hebrews 2.10, For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold I and the children which God hath given me. Our union with Christ, which is even now an accomplished fact by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, shall continue forever by virtue of our royal position with him. Our dowry is secure. For he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And we shall further see in our next study that we are identified into the tasks and triumphs of our Lord forever. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take this word to each heart. What a wonderful prospect lies before thy people and how that prospect enhances thy glory.
To think that thou shouldst have stooped to love us when we were dead in sin. To think that thou shouldst have sent thy son to die for us. What grace is manifest in thy love to us. How thou hast stooped to bring salvation to us and us to thyself. And how thou hast surrounded us with every thought. So bless the word to each heart in this hour. And use it to thy glory. If there should be those who listen who have not been born again, we pray thee that thou shalt give them in this hour restlessness, that they may know no peace until they rest in Christ. But upon thine own who have truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide, and a new sense of our glorious position in Christ. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. The time is coming when the glory of Christ will be unveiled in all its brilliance. The King of Kings has called us to be His bride so that we can share in the riches of His eternal glory forever. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled His Coming Glory. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, His Coming Glory, or simply request message number R6-17. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, How the Holy Spirit Relates to You. For many Christians, the Holy Spirit remains the most mysterious and misunderstood member of the Trinity. Controversial and contradictory teachings about His person and work further cloud the issue. This free booklet cuts through the confusion with clear biblical truth. You will take a significant leap towards spiritual maturity when you understand who the Holy Spirit is and how He works in the life of a believer. Ask for your free copy of How the Holy Spirit Relates to You when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.